Jamal, real quick question. Was that jazz? Did you play a little jazz in there or no? a new genre of music called Jamal. That was, that, was, that was really good. Well played. That was not rehearsed at all. The reason why I was asking, and this is a quick plug, this has nothing to do with today, but it has everything to do with what we're doing in a few weeks. Um, we're going to be starting a new series on the Psalms a week after uh, Easter. And as we walk through the Psalms, there's one particular Psalm that we will get to that is very very, uh, it's a tough psalm. That's, that's all there is to it. It's Psalm 89, I believe, and it, uh, it's, it's difficult. It's the only psalm that, that really doesn't have a whole lot of hope. And so what we're doing that Sunday, and I'll, I'll let you know exactly when it is, Jamal is going to be helping lead a service. We're calling it Baptist Blues and Bebop uh, that day. So there's going to be a jazz emphasis there, and so we're looking forward to that. So that's a plug uh, for that, and uh, that's coming up down the road. So we're looking forward there. So we continue our series talking about kingdom of God first and foremost. Jesus Christ says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added unto you. It was the one thing that Jesus Christ talked about more than anything else was his kingdom, about his reign. And so every kingdom needs a king. And as I was working on the message, I, I, I was wondering what, what, what was involved, if there was a whole lot involved in becoming a Roman emperor, in essence a Roman king. And the research that, that I did showed me there wasn't a whole lot that it took. It was mainly about being in the right family. But the one thing that was consistent was this, was that you became emperor through violence and you maintained your rule through violence. Jesus Christ comes into that Roman situation proclaiming a new kingdom, a kingdom that was completely anti-Roman, completely countercultural. And I think that's important as we look at this passage, as he enters into Jerusalem, and I invite you to turning your Bibles to Mark 11 or go there on the app on your phone, and, we listen, and, and listen to what transpires here, starting at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they and threw when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Father, we pray now as we get into this time of looking at your word, what a week 
that lay before you. And as we look at this passage about your entry into Jerusalem, we ask that you would help us see this passage in perhaps a new light tonight or this morning, even though we've read this passage so many times over the years. So Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes that we can see, to open our ears that we can hear, open our minds that we can understand, and open our hearts that we would be transformed so that we could shout with the people, Hosanna. Lord, you are an amazing God. You are the amazing God. And what you encountered and experienced in this upcoming week, may we never forget that. And may we celebrate your goodness to us. And may no one hear anything I say, but may they only hear what it is that you want them to hear. And may you receive all glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. They were fishermen. Nothing wrong with being a fisherman. There was nothing wrong with that, with that task at all. It put food on the table for their families. It kept them out of the riffraff of the towns in which they lived. Every single day, these fishermen got to gaze at the beauty of God's creation. And, and each and every day, they, as they gazed at his creation and, and caught fish, they were able to perhaps take some time and reflect on all that was going on around them. And the other advantage they had about being a fisherman was this, was that they got to keep a fairly low profile, catch fish, sell them in the market, make money, go home, repeat it the next day. Yet for each one of these fishermen, and these fishermen that, that decided to follow Jesus Christ, for each one of these fishermen, there was a hard and significant reality they faced every single time they went to the synagogue. And the reality was this, was that every single rabbi that they interacted with did not believe in their future as far as that these fishermen, that these particular individuals, Peter, James, John, and the others, that, that they didn't have what it took to be part of the upper, upper echelon, if you want to call it that. There was nothing wrong with being a fisherman, but every single week they went to the synagogue, they were reminded of this. Maybe the rabbis didn't say anything to them, but they knew this, that they didn't make the cut. It was a difficult thing, and perhaps over the course of time, they realized, wow, this is just the way it is. I'm only a fisherman, but here's what's great, is that Jesus Christ reaches into these fishermen's lives, and he places them front and center in this new kingdom that he's establishing. These fishermen were not simply fishermen. They now were fishermen with a bigger purpose, with a bigger understanding, with a bigger understanding that their life mattered. And it mattered because they understood that this one was doing something different that they had never seen done before. They witnessed the people's response to this one, Jesus Christ. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle. They even saw Jesus Christ speak into a cave and say, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus came out after being dead for a few days. They saw him 
interact with people in a way that gave hope to people. They, they heard this message repeatedly about his kingdom, about his reign, and what all that entailed. And as they continued seeing this over the course of three years, this question began to build with them. And the question was this, could this be the end to the Roman government? We have a people that is growing every single time that we go out. We have a people that is chomping at the bit for something different, for the end to an oppression. This has to be, this has to be the time when he comes back, and not just when he comes back, but the time has come now where the king is here. I invite you to take a, just to turn either a page or, or scroll backwards on your Bible app and, and go back to Mark chapter 10 because I want to set the stage for what we're going to see in just a few moments. And we start at verse 35 of Mark 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, <laughs> I love their boldness. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's bold. Jesus, we don't know what you're doing, but we know this. We want you to do something for us, and we want you to do whatever it is that we ask for you. That's a bold statement. And here's what's great about Jesus. He responds to them. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't treat them horribly. And then he says this, and it's almost like you could see him sort of setting them up. He says, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Their response, we can. We have the advantage. We're on the other side of the, re of the resurrection. They were not on the other side of the resurrection when they're making these commitments. But what they realized over the course of time spending with Jesus, what they realized was this, was that this kingdom, the popularity, his power continued to grow. And it seemed to be growing at an exponential rate. And because it was growing at an exponential rate, they realized this could be the end of the Romans. And we need to get on the ground floor of this movement. And James and John, being so considerate of other people, they said, we want the best seats in the house now. Thanks for looking out for us, Peter, or James and John. We appreciate that. They wanted the best seats in the house. They wanted on the ground level. From a financial standpoint, it'd be comparable to you purchasing 10 shares of stock in Apple in 1980 and not doing anything with it and today you decided to cash it in. That $220 investment you made in 1980 is now worth $125,000. An increase of 56,465%. I actually said a number that had a comma in it and I did not mess it up. Yay! Thank you. God is good. I worked on that line five times before I walked in here this morning. An amazing increase. 
They're on the ground floor. James and John are on the ground floor. They want this to happen. And James and John, Jesus says, can you really do this? And their response is, yes, we can. James and John wanted to go all in with their commitment to Jesus Christ. They saw what was happening and they said, we want, we're going all in on this new kingdom that you're setting forth. We're going all in and what ends up happening is this, and it's what I call the battle between the over and the under. James and John resemble just about anybody, any Christ follower that has ever said or done since Jesus Christ came on the scene, and it was this, just like them, we overestimate our commitment to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, can you really do this? Do you know what it entails? Do you, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And they respond, yes, we can. You and I say, we're going to go all in for Jesus Christ. We, over, we make these overcommitments. And I'm not here to knock making a commitment to Christ. Trust me, you'll never hear me say that. But what ends up happening is this, is that we overcommit, we, over, we, over, we overestimate our commitment, and it leads to this. And the reason why we overestimate our commitment to Christ, what ends up happening is we underestimate the cost of that sacrifice. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll say whatever you want me to say. And God provides those opportunities. And over the course of time, what ends up happening we back off. What's beautiful about Jesus Christ and his interaction with these guys is the fact that he is right there with them and he always responds with grace. We need someone who's more committed to us than we are to him. We need someone who didn't underestimate the cost of sacrifice. He went through the cost of sacrifice. Why? Because he knew that we would falter. We have a Christ that understands commitment. And so as James and John and the other guys say, we're all in, they now approach Jerusalem. And this whole idea that the time has come is now going to be met with the time has come or has it. Or has it? Because look what happens here. They approach Jerusalem, and, and we go, and Jesus says to them in verse 2, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the, outside in the street, tied at a doorway, and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to. I find that rather interesting. Of all the other times that Jesus Christ asked them to do stuff, they stumble and bumble along the way. But here they say, oh, we can actually do this one. So they tell him, and here's what happens. The people let them go. Jesus Christ knows what needs to happen. He knows what's going to happen. And so they see what's happening, and then I don't think they could gather. I don't think they could comprehend what they were about to experience. They respond, and they see the people respond. The people, including the apostles, were ecstatic about what was happening. Because now, now, 
they're going to experience the age to come. They believe that now this, everything's going to be reestablished. And we've talked about this diagram over the course of this Kingdom of God series, and we're going we're to focus on just this portion now. They believe that now the age to come has arrived. That it's all over. That everything is now going to happen. And what does that mean? The age to come would mean the following. An end to all types of injustice. An end to God's people being oppressed an end to pain, an end to God's enemies. It was, a beginning, uh, it was the beginning to a kingdom that valued people rather than prophets. It was the beginning of a kingdom marked by restoration, not destruction. It was the beginning of a kingdom marked by joy. It was the beginning of a kingdom marked by peace. It was the beginning of a kingdom marked by grace. The age to come is now. Because Jesus Christ is the King Messiah. Jesus Christ is the one who's bringing in this kingdom. The people are ecstatic. But one of the issues that we have to accept is this, is that our, under, our kingdom, our understanding of the kingdom is always short-sighted. We don't see the biggerness, the bigness of this. We forget that there has to be sacrifice involved in this kingdom to be established. We forget that there are some things that, that are going to happen that, that are not easy to go through. Because when the king comes, the king is going to do some things that, that are going to strike people as odd. And the king has come. We pick it up in verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who follow shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey. And a king's mode of transportation spoke volumes about what, he was, what his core principles were. Back in Jesus' day, when a king was going in to conquer a, a city, he came in on a, on a big, big, big horse. And it was to say this, a new ruler's in town, and I am taking it by violence. You will not mess with me, and if you do mess with me, you will encounter an, a resistance that you never thought you could, you could never imagine. So the people are excited, the apostles are excited about this new king, and here he comes in on a donkey. Other kings throughout Israel's history had come in on donkeys. But for them, it began to short-circuit what they were expecting Jesus Christ to do. They, be, they began to understand that Jesus Christ's kingdom really doesn't match up very well with us, with what we think. We want the Romans out of here. We want them gone with. We, and the only way to deal with them is to deal with them violently. And what is this new king coming in on a donkey? What's going on here? A king entered into a new city on a donkey who was coming in peace. This did not measure up well with everybody. 
I was asked the other night at the Thursday night Bible study that, that uh, I lead, uh, one of the questions was this, was why did the people turn so radically against Jesus Christ from Sunday to Friday? Part of the belief is, part of my belief is, the reason why they turned so quickly was that he was not the king that they wanted him to be. And they were miffed. They were upset about it. And so this king riding in on a donkey raises a few eyebrows, but the bigger, the bigger picture is this. The Romans are now on alert. The people know that. The people know that they are growing in numbers. The population in Jerusalem during Passover explodes exponentially because so many people come there to celebrate. Tensions are always high, but now there's a king who actually came into the city. The Romans are going to pay a lot more attention now because this king has arrived. When Jesus Christ shows up, things change. When Jesus Christ shows up, nothing stays the same. And so many people spread their cloaks on the road, verse 8, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, and we, we know what they shouted. They shouted Hosanna and these other phrases, and I want to get to those in a few moments. But these people did something very significant before the shouting. They laid down their cloaks on the road. At least for me, it's always struck me as that's a little bit of an odd thing to do. But yet, there's precedent for this. And back in, back in 2 Kings chapter 9, listen to what happens here. This is uh, when Jehu is installed as king. It says this, starting at verse, at verse 11. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, Is everything all right? Jehu replied, You know the man and the sort of things he says. That's not true, they said. Tell us. A prophet had just talked with Jehu and said, You are the new king. So Jehu said, Here's what he told me. This is what Yahweh says, I anoint you king over Israel. And the response is significant. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. The reason why the people laid down their cloaks was because they were saying this, we submit to your authority as king. The irony of this is that we know this, in a few days, they pretty much turn on him. Not pretty much, they do turn on him. But the laying down of the cloaks on the ground meant this, that they were going to submit to his authority. Remember what I said a few moments ago. We overestimate our commitment, and we underestimate the sacrifice. They threw down their cloaks saying, you are the king, you are the one who has the authority. But in a matter of days, it turns. In a matter of days, it changes. And they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna means be saved. Hosanna means we want saved. But what the people didn't know, and it goes to what their kingdom, their kingdom understanding is, is that they wanted saved from the Romans. They didn't realize they needed saved from so much more. 
They had a crisis, an ongoing crisis of dealing with the Romans. And that crisis overwhelmed their understanding, overwhelmed the way they saw things. You see, we do the same thing. We cry out in a crisis saying, save us, save us, save us. And yet we forget and we underestimate our need for salvation. Not just saving from that situation in which we're in, but saving overall in our lives. How many times have you found yourself asking for saving from an ugly situation and forgotten about the condition of your soul? We need an eternal salvation, not a temporary one. Have you thought about your immediate needs and have you thought about how much bigger those immediate needs were that they were far more pressing than seeing the bigger picture of your life could your current situation that you find yourself in right now be a way the lord is using you to help acknowledge your need for jesus's salvation in your life You cry out, save me from this situation, but do you realize that that situation might be there to help move you from that situation into an understanding that Jesus Christ is bigger than your situation, and he says, place your trust in me. Is today, is today that Palm Sunday where you say, Lord, I need saved from this situation but I need saved completely in my life. Turn to him and he won't let you down. Turn to him just as as people throughout the history have turned to him and they find this out, that he always comes through. Will you turn to him today? Rather than looking for a temporary, quote-unquote, fix Will you turn to him and experience the eternal fix that Jesus Christ gives in saving your life? You see, the king has come. And the king has work to do. Look at verse 11 as we begin to wrap this up. This is an inter- I think this is a very interesting verse that, that Mark throws in here. It says this, Jesus entered Jerusalem. We hear that. We see the people doing all that they did. He enters Jerusalem, and he went into the temple courts. We're okay there. But look what happens next. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He looked around at everything in the temple courts, but because it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the 12. As I was working on the message this week, this verse got to me. I don't know why. But I began to ask this question. It wasn't like Jesus didn't know what time it was. Why would he go into the temple courts knowing that probably nobody's going to be around? Why would he go there? It's late. It isn't like he had never been in the temple courts before and he wanted to get a lay of the land. Why did he go in there? You see, everything was set up for Passover. 
Everything was, was there. Everything that was needed, the money changers and their tables were set up, the animals needed for sacrifice were in the temple courts. But it was late. And Jesus goes in there. It's not chaos. It's stillness. The only sounds that are being made are those animals that are about to be sacrificed. The work this king had to do would be work that no other king could ever do. This work this king had to do wasn't about sacrificing animals or overthrowing the Romans. Anyone could do that because no kingdom can last forever. This work this king had to do wasn't about establishing a kingdom that would last for a few, cent for a few centuries. It was about establishing a kingdom that lasts for an eternity. The work this king had to do wasn't to oppress those he would conquer. It was about freeing people from, from their oppression and bringing freedom to everybody who called on his name. The work this king had to do wasn't interested in overwhelming people with his power. It was about overwhelming people with a grace that is far more powerful than any army out there. The work this king had to do wasn't going to be accomplished through the bloodshed of his followers. It was going to be accomplished through his very own blood being shed on a cross. The work this king had to do was sacrifice. And as he looked at those animals that were about to be sacrificed, Jesus Christ began, or not began, but continued to understand that his sacrifice was going to make all these sacrifices obsolete. Because his sacrifice is once and for all. I believe the reason why Jesus Christ went into the temple courts, even though it was late, was for him to have some time to understand what was about to happen. Because from this point on, it gets increasingly chaotic. And as he looked across the temple courts that evening, one thought perhaps came into his mind, and it was this. His kingdom has no plan B. This was it. There was no alternative. There was no going back. Jesus Christ's kingdom hinged on this week. And as the people had just said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. As they're screaming all this, he knew this in the stillness of those temple courts at that particular time. He knew that those cheers were soon going to be jeers. He knew that in a matter of hours, it was all going to come to an end. He knew this, and in the stillness of that temple court time, he understood that his kingdom has no plan B. This is it. And unlike you and me, he understood the cost. And unlike you or me, he didn't compromise one moment. And unlike you and me, he did it completely 
and holy to, rec- to, to, to rescue us, to restore us completely and holy. As we enter into this week, we have a lot of time to reflect. We have different moments to reflect. And perhaps you and me this week can take some time and do what Jesus did before all the chaos erupts and go into the temple courts, figuratively speaking, and reflect on what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. This week is a week unlike any other week in the history of humanity. Nothing comes close to it. And because of what Jesus Christ accomplished in this week, nothing ever will come close to it. Because he came, he saw, he lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. And we get to celebrate that in 168 hours. But between now and then, it's my prayer that we reflect. It's my prayer that we process through what Jesus Christ did for us. The one who made the commitment and stayed true the entire time. Father, we pray as we contemplate these words, as we reflect on them throughout this week, it's my prayer that just as these people, sub, uh, just as these people laid down their cloaks under your feet and submitted to your authority and made the proclamation that they were submitting to your authority, it's my prayer that we would submit to your authority. Lord, we confess that we go our own ways. We confess that we think that we are the ones who call the shots and we'll tell you what we want you to do when we want you to do it. And I would ask this morning that you would have mercy on us. Have mercy on us for our short-sightedness. Have mercy on us for getting more caught up in the world's ways than your ways. Have mercy on us for forgetting that you did all that was necessary to rescue us. And I thank you that you do have mercy on us, that you do restore us, and that you do save us. Lord, I pray for those in this room that perhaps do not know you, that you would reach into their lives and bring them to yourself. And for those in this room that claim that we know you, I would pray that you would move in our lives in such a way that we would grow in a deeper appreciation of what you've accomplished for us. And that you would help us to take those next steps in following you with our lives. Holy Spirit, do your work. And I thank you for Jesus Christ and for the work that he did in this week. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we sing a couple more songs. We sing about our hope being built on nothing less. Our hope is built on nothing less than this very righteousness that that Jesus Christ accomplished for us. And so I invite you to stand. And as we sing this song and and then a, a song after that,
we can celebrate his goodness to us. So please, let's stand.